Welcome to the Sports ABC's podcast with Andrew, Brandon, and Chase. Welcome back, listeners, to the Sports ABC's. This is Chase, and we will be coming from off the top. We will be talking a little bit here to start on uh, just the headlines from from around this week of, of sports, and we'll turn the time over to Andrew for the NFL-NHL moves to Vegas. All right, thanks, Chase. So the move to Vegas, you know, you've got the Raiders moving to Vegas as well as the Vegas Golden Knights coming to town. And, you know, personally, I don't like teams moving cities uh, unless there's a very good reason for it. Um, the Raiders are actually they're selling out on their season tickets, but they were dead last in attendance last year, and they were 30,000 on, on the average attendance. They were 30,000 behind Dallas and 25,000 people behind second place, the Gi- New York Giants. And so, I mean, I can see why they want to move out of Oakland, even though they have a dedicated fan base. They've been there for years. You know, they're hoping to get a new start. And the only worry that I have with them is can Vegas really support multiple professional teams in the city along with everything else that's already there how many people are actually going to commit to these teams in these stadiums um, for the long run especially if the teams are not very good and i feel like that's the same with the golden knights you know how many people are really going to go there but i happened to speak to somebody who was from vegas and he told me specifically he said you know i am a san diego chargers fan but all of a sudden i'm a raiders fan so I think that the hype around the city, at least now, is very big, and they're really excited for them to come to town. So we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. Yeah, well, most NFL definitely... games happen over the weekend. So, you know, there's a huge influx of people that go into Vegas on the weekends anyway. Um, I'm sure that attendance will be good because of that. They'll, be, they'll have a lot of – I don't feel like the attendance will be a lot of Raiders fans typically. I don't think it'll be as, as... – overpowering on the home side team as every other NFL team because it is such a travel destination for the weekend. And I think the the Raiders are going to, money-wise, I think it's going to help them out a lot. I think it is going to bring in a lot of income for them because of just how many people go to Vegas and for the weekend and, you know, to gamble, drink, and, oh, hey, might as well go go hit up an NFL game. You know, it'll it'll be a, a prime weekend thing. I think it'll be a little more difficult for for the Golden Knights to be able to have solid fan base because hockey's not super popular in America. It's up there, but it's not super pop- popular, especially in the West Coast. And so I think that they'll struggle. Um, but it, I, I think it all depends on how good the team is with, with both. If the teams are good, they'll get people. If they're not, they won't. Just like almost any other team. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. So, Brandon, um, what are the b- basketball headlines this week? What do we have? Well, so the biggest one, I'm sure everyone has already heard, but uh, Kyrie Irving has requested a trade from the C- Cleveland C- Cavaliers. I can't talk right now. Um, and it's actually interesting um, – Kyle Boone of CBS Sports actually reported that he requested a trade as early as before the NBA draft. Um, 
And so it's interesting that if that's true, uh, that Cleveland didn't try to do anything, that they didn't try to trade um, Kyrie for Paul George or something like that. Um, and so I'm not sure if I necessarily believe that. I think Cleveland would have been a little more active in the um, in the trade market if that were true. Um, but, uh, you know, there are a few teams that Kyrie did say that he wanted to go to. Um the Spurs, Minnesota, the Heat, and New York. Um, seems like he wants to either be the number one option or he wants to go to a, a team like Minnesota or the Spurs that um, seem like either they got a lot better this summer or have been really good for a long time. Um, I think a lot. I think Kyrie just feels like he's in the shadow of LeBron right now. And doesn't feel like LeBron gives him the best option to beat the Warriors, which really is kind of crazy. I mean, Kyrie took over two more shots a game in the NBA Finals than LeBron did. And for the regular season, he took almost three more shots a game. And so how he thinks that he's going to – I mean, he was their number one option, really. I mean, they I feel like LeBron did a lot gave up a lot for Kyrie and Kyrie just feels like he's not getting enough credit. And so this, this, I think it'll open up the mellow trade to New York. I think New York is probably the front runners to get Kyrie because everyone knows LeBron wants to play with mellow. And so why not trade Kyrie for mellow straight up? I I think that Cleveland's not going to want to do that straight up because of how much older mellow is, but New York's going to, you know, I feel like New York's going to try and get – they're both going to try and work out and try and get picks from each other. But I, I, I feel the only way that that trade gets done is if it's just straight up for both. Yeah, I think that, you know, Kyrie, he came out and he said he wants to be uh, the player that teams are going to build around. He wants to be that cornerstone piece. And I think no matter where LeBron plays, he's always going to be the biggest topic on his team. You know, it doesn't really matter who he plays with. Um, you're going to be in his shadow. So whether or not Kyrie, you know, did get more shots or whether he really was the number one option, he does not feel like that. And, you know, I'd love to see him, you know, go to a different team in the East because it makes an Eastern team better. So whether or not Cleveland is still really good with LeBron, it actually would help the Eastern Conference if he does go to somewhere like the Knicks because he's going to make that team at least a little bit more competitive and a little bit better um, you know, against a stacked Western Conference. And I really like Porzingis, but <laughs> I don't like the Knicks, but I like Porzingis. No. It's good. Okay, Chase, let's move on baseball. Okay, so we had the All-Star game last week, and um, just a couple nippets from the Home Run Derby had um, – for the first time ever had a rookie win the home run derby and Aaron judge. And he, I mean, the guy's just an unbelievable athlete. He's six, seven, he's 280 pounds, plays in right field is able to run like any, any outfielder I've ever seen. And he has more power than anyone I've ever seen. And so for him to be able to beat some of those power guys in the home run derby and make it look like he wasn't even trying. I mean, he beat, 
in the finals, I can't remember who the name of the guy who he beat, but he beat him with over two minutes left on the clock. I mean, in the with four minutes to hit as many home runs as you can, it felt it felt like he was wasn't even trying. I mean, he he hit 27 home runs in the first round with, and I think he had about 45 seconds left on the clock when he hit 27. I mean, it's crazy. The guy has more power than I've ever seen. And of the 47 home runs that he hit, he hit six of them over 500 yards. He had three of his balls hit the ceiling of of the of Miami Stadium there, and just couldn't wall up the ball out of the park. And he's just—it's just amazing that a rookie, a guy his age, is is dominating the the, the leagues right now. And the All Star well, game was. <laughs> It was just one another pitch pitch fest walk off home run in the eleventh inning. First time the All Star game's gone to extras in like twenty something years, I think. And it's you know, it's it just feels like it's been the the league is being dominated by pitchers and and power hitters. And so it's it's all about home runs and strikeouts. And you know, well, those are the stats that matter, right? <laughs> yeah, I really, I personally, I don't like all star games in any sport. Like, I think that they're not very entertaining for the most part. I think that, you know, depending on how people are selected, it's all a popularity contest and not due to actual skill. And so, <laughs> you know, I don't follow baseball a ton, but I just, I don't like home, I just, I don't like all star games. Um, I like the whole idea of all star weekend, but I feel like you know, it, it might be more beneficial to give all the athletes a little bit of a break than just go out and just pretend like you're playing a game that you actually play for for a living. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, yeah, I think that a lot of it is that the players just don't care, that you don't have that invested interest in it. And, um, I mean, they they took away the rule that the winner of the All-Star game got home field advantage in the World Series. Uh, the last few years had been that. And so the American league just has so much more power than the national league. So they've, they've won the last three years. And so they had home field advantage in the world series last year when in reality, the Cubs had a way better record than the Indians. And so that's where I don't like that because you should reward teams for playing well in the regular season. The teams who play the best in the regular season should have home field advantage and not rely everything on that one game. But I think that it it can be good for and it's it's all for fans and so yeah the, the the players that play in those in those big markets like New York and LA they're gonna get more players because they have more people voting for them but I, I like how how the how the MLB does a lot of it because they um, the just like the NBA where uh, the fans only choose the starters and then the the coaches and executives of the, of the league choose the backups and and they fill out the bullpen and stuff like that and so that I, I feel like that's a little bit more it's better because you you do it does kind of suck for those guys that play in the small markets that can't get starts on on those games but it happens it's the yeah. whole Everything's a popularity contest. Yeah. yeah, but if you think about it, the from the league's standpoint, um, they're trying to sell tickets. You know, they're trying to get people mm-hmm. to watch, and the best way to get people to watch is by letting them pick who they want to see. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. 
sometimes you do end up with stupid picks, you know, like Zaza Pachulia. Um, yeah. But, really. you know, for the most part, um, small market teams do have a harder time getting in. Uh, but from the NBA standpoint, they have no reason, or even the MLB standpoint, they have no reason to, to change the, the format for that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, I, I don't know. We can talk about that later. But, okay, yeah. so now we can go into our picks for the Conor McGregor-Floyd Mayweather fight. Andrew, what is your pick and why? Well, you know, I personally think that Conor McGregor is just going to be out of his league. Um, strictly because it is a different sport than UFC. And different You mean Mayweather? Or no, McGregor. That's right. McGregor. Um, because I just think that it's going to be very hard to beat Mayweather. I mean, he's 49-0 in that sport. He has the experience, and he's a very good athlete. Even though he's taken, you know, a couple years off, he's still a very good athlete. And I just think that the rule difference and just the style is going to really be difficult for McGregor to overcome. I know a lot of people say that if McGregor can just land a punch, you know, that's going to decide everything. But, you know, that's what everybody tries to do against Mayweather and he manages to get away he plays very you know he fights very defensively and I think that it's going to be very tough for McGregor to win just because he's stepping out of his sport and into a different arena with different rules and I just I I just don't think he has a chance yeah um so from what I can see uh McGregor is crazy okay he's He's one of the craziest fighters I've ever seen. Um, but it's hard. Like, I would like for McGregor to win just because of how insane he is. Um, but it's hard for me to pick him. Um, you know, looking back to the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight, um, people weren't sure about that, but Mayweather just creamed him creamed Pacquiao and so I think Mayweather will win um but I would like to see McGregor do well because he's just insane (laughs) yeah um the one chance that McGregor has is to jump on him early is um McGregor's whole game plan right now is to piss Mayweather off and it see from the looks of it it looks like he's pissed him off like I've I've never seen Mayweather talk this much in his in the pre-fight pressers and stuff. I've never seen him be this active in it. He's more of kind of a guy who will sit there and let guys talk. And so I I feel like McGregor's getting to him. And if all McGregor needs is one punch, like if I've watched a lot of his UFC fights and the power that he generates behind some of his punches are unbelievable. I mean, he, he KO'd a guy who was 20 pounds heavier than him and and had almost a six inch reach advantage on him. KO'd him in one punch in 10 seconds into the fight. I mean, the guy has incredible power. And so if he's able to land a punch, then I I'd give it to McGregor because I mean, there's, he has so much power and so much just raw strength. Um, but if it gets outside of four rounds, McGregor's not going to be able to last. And so if McGregor has any hope of winning this fight, he has to end it early. He has to get into his face early and get him frustrated and get, 
get Mayweather off of his game, which, I mean, no fighter's ever been able to do. But from what I've seen from a lot of the fights that I've seen of Mayweather's fights, um, he's never fought someone that has been able to generate this, this much power since Mayweather was in his 20s. And so the age is going to be a big deal. And um, if if McGregor's able to jump on him early, then I could see it swinging in favor of McGregor. But as as of right now, it's it's going to be difficult for him. Perfect. Well, let's get into kind of the bulk topics that we want to get into. And today we're talking soccer, um, Major League Soccer and U.S. Men's National Team. And the first topic today uh, is Baltimore Toledo refing the Real Salt Lake versus Portland Timbers game a couple nights ago. And I, I was able to watch this one being a Real Salt Lake fan. And with you know, for the first 40 minutes, there was absolutely, you know, very little happened except for Beckerman's great shot. And then from there till the end of the game, he handed out 10 cards. He did seven yellows and three red cards. And that just blows my mind. He threw in a penalty kick in there as well. And, you know, the game ended, I believe it was 4-1. And it was 9-10, v which is almost unheard of in soccer. But mm-hmm. in my opinion, 10 cards in a game is very excessive. Um, yeah. But also, when you look at the laws of the game, every foul that was committed that he handed a card out was probably deserved, except for when Kyle Beckerman got his red. Everything other than that, I can see why he called it, and I agree with the calls. But I just feel like Baltimore Toledo just averages too many cards. I believe he averages over three cards a game which just seems to be, he's just, you know, pocket happy. He just likes to try to give cards out whenever he refs. Mm-hmm. And it, it just felt like the game didn't have any flow because of that, especially in the second half. And um, it just wasn't very clean. And that's, you know, there, there were so many cards and all but, the, of course, the Kyle Beckerman card was, was warranted. But I feel like as, as an official, you have to do, do better at managing the game keeping the game under control and he definitely did not do that he allowed a lot go he allowed a lot of stuff to go in the first half that i saw that could have been fouls and it just he he lost control of the game there in the second half he didn't have control of the players he didn't have control of the tempo of the game and so he he felt like he had to give those cars to try and pull it back but as an official it's impossible you have to get to them early. You have to be able to control the game early or else you're not going to be able to control the game at the end of the game. It's just not going to happen. I mean, the players at the beginning of the game are going to be feeling you out as an official and you have to be a tighter a lot more in the beginning of the game. And then as the game progresses, you can let things go, but not at the beginning of the game. And he let way too much go there at the beginning and it got in everybody's head. It got more physical and he couldn't control it there at the end. Great, Brandon. Do you have any say in this? So, um, I think just in general, I agree a lot with what Chase said. Um, I didn't catch the game, but in general, um, I think uh, I don't know. There's there's got to be a balance between a ref letting the the players play and then making sure that you know, no one gets injured because really that's the point of of a foul, of calling a foul in any sport is 
if there's a dangerous play that happens. And so you want to make sure that um, as a ref that, you know, nothing dangerous is happening. But even if something could be called a foul, if it's not necessarily dangerous per se, I'd say sometimes you just got to let them go. Perfect. You know, I agree with that, that, you know, call the foul, but not necessarily give the card. Make sure to give more warnings than just mm -hmm. going straight to the card. Um, I think that's the yeah. best way is that, you know, in soccer is very different than a lot of other leagues that, you know, it's up to the ref's discretion of when to give those cards. And I feel like if he has to call, you know, stop the game, call the captains over and say, I'm not taking any more of this. You know, he needs to be able to do that, not just start going to the pocket for every challenge just to try to get it back in control. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, you have to be a lot more vocal as an official, especially when a game gets out of hand. And that's I feel like he didn't do that. He, re he, he tried to control the game by giving out cards. It's, you know, it's just like a basketball official trying to control the game with technicals. You can't control the game by ejecting players. It's not going to happen. It's just going to get other players more pissed off because they don't think it warranted a red card or a yellow card or whatever. And so it's that's not an effective way to control a game, to control players' tempers and to get the game more under control. And so I feel like he just mishandled the situation and could have a lot easier and it would have been a lot, a lot easier for him and a lot easier for the league because, I mean, the MLS is having to deal with all of these appeals and – you know, just having to deal with everything post-game that you don't have to deal with if you don't hand out stupid cards. I agree. And just last thing on this is that if you actually search Baltimore Toledo, they have people who have been complaining about him since, like, 2011. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm surprised he's even still a referee because, you know, he's very, very – he draws a hard line. I was listening to the Real Salt Lake announcers, and they were like, there's either two ways he's going to go. He's going to let everything go or he's going to let nothing go. He's very inconsistent, and, you know, I'm just surprised he's still a ref. <laughs> but definitely. next topic, Brandon, we'll let you lead this off. How can Major League Soccer increase their ticket sales and their attendance? Okay, so – I've actually thought a lot about this, and I think it's a similar answer to how baseball can increase in popularity in America. Um, it's in high school, uh, coaches don't let kids play more than one sport. Um, and so if, if a kid wants to play basketball or football, they've got to pick that, you know, in junior high and they've got to stick with it or they've got to switch to a different sport and they'll be behind and they can't, they can't play multiple sports. Um, and, you know, with the popularity of, of basketball and football, uh, sports like, um, soccer and, and baseball, um, even hockey, they just don't stand a chance. Even though soccer is one of those games that you can take a four-year-old out and teach him to play, you know. Um, they can play that from the time they're extremely young. They can play it all the way through high school. But as soon as they get into high school, um, there's these other sports that are more popular. And I think letting kids play multiple sports in high school 
will increase the interest in both soccer and baseball. Um, and I think ticket sales will increase. I think they'll get a wider uh, selection of talent in the pro sports because a lot of people who don't make the NBA, if they had stuck with soccer or something like that, they could have made it into the, into the pros. Um, and so I think, you know, taking, uh, I guess, giving the kids uh, choices in high school um, will get their We'll get them and their families more interested in these sports that just aren't nearly as popular as basketball and football. I think a lot of it has to do with parents as well. And and I think that baseball and soccer are definitely coming up. They're definitely on the rise. And it's because of the the head trauma stuff that's going on with football. Football has has decreased their television ratings in the past four seasons. And so it's been a pretty big decrease in people watching football because no one wants to play football. No one wants to put their kids into football anymore because of how bad it is for you. How, you know, we're, we're getting all these cases of pro players coming down with um, huge brain issues because of how many hits and concussions and, and things that lead later in life after you're done playing football that aren't worth it aren't worth playing the game. And so soccer is definitely becoming more popular. They're starting, especially here in Idaho, they're getting a lot, it's getting a lot more recognition. Soccer is finally down in the 3A and the 2A levels. They're finally offering it in 3A and 2A schools, which has never been, has never happened. I mean, it's, it's been typically a 5A and maybe some 4A schools that play soccer. But now every, almost every school that's in the 2A and 3A levels are offering soccer. And so I think that's huge in just increasing the popularity of the game as well and just giving the kids options. I mean, if like where where we went to school in Grace, it, we had football, basketball, and track, and that's all we could, could do as, as guys. And so we just didn't have the options that some of the bigger schools had, and so we didn't follow those sports because we couldn't play them. And so if – if the smaller schools and more schools out there are willing to offer more sports, offer the, the different type of sports, then that gets the game out there and that creates more interest in the games. Right now, I just want to ask each of you a question. Where do you think Major League Soccer attendance ranks in the major sports in the United States? Um, it's below basketball for sure. Um, I would think uh, third. Okay, Chase. Fifth. Okay, so would it surprise you guys to learn that they are third, but it's behind oh, NFL wow. and MLB. They're actually yeah. beating what? NBA and NHL. They averaged 21,692 last season. <laughs> and I personally think the biggest reason that it's not bigger is because their stadiums are lower capacity. Um, you know, being at Rio Tinto Stadium, they only have a capacity of 20,213. And that's pretty average for, you know, most of the stadiums that are soccer specific. Um, the league leaders in MLS are Seattle. And they have over 40,000 people come to every game. But they also play at CenturyLink Field, 
which is a NFL which is football stadium. field. <laughs> you know, so mm-hmm. I think that th- that's the biggest thing that soccer has going against it is the size of their stadiums. That they're they're just not big enough to support the people who would go. Real Salt Lake, mm-hmm. you know, they almost average a sellout every game. And I feel like they could sell, you know, at least a few thousand more tickets if they had the, the capacity. Um, mm-hmm. Like I said, the average for Major League Soccer is 21,692, which is bigger than Rio Tinto Stadium, you know, even bigger than their capacity. And mm-hmm. so it kind of surprised me when I looked it up and they are beating the NBA and the NHL. You know, and it, it kind of surprised well, uh, me that MLB's ahead of them. But. Yeah. Well, you look at the the stadiums of, of the different leagues and with basketball having to be played inside and ha- the, they have the smallest court by far, the smart smallest playing area. And so for you to be able to see a court inside a stadium, you need to be able to have less capacity. I mean, um, um, Vivint Smart Home Arena capacity is just over 15,000 and they're decreasing it this year because of because the the seats are going to be wider than the green seats are or and so that's decreasing because they want higher ticket prices and they want you know better seating there but when you're playing outside I mean and hockey they they eliminate a lot of their front row seats because of how big it is but they still have to play inside and so it's it it starts becoming a space issue of how many seats can you fit inside of a stadium and then, and you still be able to like really be able to watch the game and enjoy it. And so being able to play outside on the big, big fields that football, baseball and soccer all play on, I could see that with, you know, and especially if you have an NFL stadium, like the Sounders do, they, you know, you can have the interest. It's just how, why, why can't they get more seats? Why can't the stadiums like Rio Tinto and some of the stadiums in, you know, in Portland and, and the different smaller market cities, how, how can they get more seats in there and have it economical for them? Right. Well, you know, I just, you know, I think that soccer is definitely on the rise, especially, you know, you can tell from when they first came, you know, became a major league to where they're at now they've more than doubled their attendance so i just think that time will tell and like i said earlier i really feel like the key is going to be the larger capacity because you can't have them outside and they're just going to have to make them bigger because there is the demand for those seeds and so now they just have to decide how to invest to meet this supply and demand curve Mm-hmm. Well, and you look at Rio Tinto, it's it's the way it's built. You can add plenty more seats in there. Like they've got room for it. It's just why aren't they doing it? Mm-hmm. But well, so next we're going to switch from MLS into the US men's national team. And we're kind of looking at the national team, what their outlook is like in the coming years after um, next year's World Cup and, you know, how they're doing now. And Chase, uh, have you been able to keep up with any of the Gold Cups so far this year? I have. I've watched. I watched the um, the Martinique game, and I watched the um, the El Salvador game. And those, I feel like um, they've got the players. They definitely have some good, talented young players, especially um, Pulisic, who I mean, he's he's already one of the top goal scorers in the European League, and He's, I mean, he's what, 18, 19? 
I mean, the guy's a stud. And so we have talented players. It's just I feel like we're not developing the guys that aren't naturally talented. It's, you know, um, I feel like Bruce Arena's doesn't develop, isn't very good at developing players, isn't very good at relying on youth because you need it. I mean, you you look at the... Um, the six exchanges that he made from from the pool play to the knockout stages here at the Gold Cup, and he brought in six guys that all have almost over a hundred. I think all of them have over a hundred caps for the for the men's national team, and so for them to bring in that many players, especially when you send, I mean, three guys were going home anyway, but you send three guys that had played really well in the knockouts in the pool play. I mean, and you send them home. Because you want to bring in Altidore and Bradley and Howard and some of the other, you know, Nag, Nabdi, Nagby? Nagby. I can never pronounce this. <laughs> Nagby. There we go. And so you bring in some of those players that you don't necessarily need to bring in because this the Gold Cup's not that important. The Gold Cup doesn't doesn't really influence our our pool doesn't influence us qualifying for the world cup doesn't influence a lot of things. And so why bring in those superstar players when we can develop, give those guys more of a, more of an experience in playing in knockout games, playing in pressure field games and give them more experience to where they'll be able and willing to go into world cup games against the best players in the world. I mean, we just, we don't have the bench. We don't have the other players to be able to really compete with Brazil and Spain and Portugal, some of the dominant countries, because they have, their coaches are developing their players. And, you know, I agree that, you know, the Gold Cup, the only purpose for the Gold Cup is to qualify for the Confederations Cup, which is the dress rehearsal for, you know, the World Cup. But at the same time, I feel like, the United States needs to develop, you know, a three-two win over Martinique, and only two over El Salvador. Where, to be perfectly honest, they only played really well for about ten minutes of that game, which is when they scored two oh, yeah. goals in five minutes, and the rest of the game El Salvador was bringing it to them. Tim Howard made a great save just five minutes in, or else it could have been a completely different game. You know, I just I don't think that's good enough, and you know the United States they are you know. Probably number two in CONCACAF. You know, I'd say hands down Mexico is a better team right now than the United States. And I don't know if there's anybody that can really <laughs> argue that. That, you know, yeah. yeah, we brought a B Nobody. team into the group stages. But that B team mm-hmm. played really poorly <laughs> against Minos. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like mm-hmm. we lost. You know, we didn't lose, but we didn't really win much either. And so just to yeah. me, it's like after that first team... There's nobody, there's no depth, exactly what Chase said. That, mm-hmm. you know, Bruce Arena, even from when he was the first, you know, the first time he coached the men's national team, he's stuck with the same players. He hasn't really developed anybody else, and he's relying heavily on these veterans, basically because his job relies on it. You know, if he doesn't make the World Cup, he's fired. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. But I also feel like, you know, the Gold Cup at least is where you need to develop these players. And the Gold Cup, they don't call in 
the European based players because they're doing preseason. It's just not, you know, it's just not a tournament that they call them in for. So that's why we haven't seen Pulisic or Bobby Wood um, because they just don't call them in. And I feel like we do have talent overseas, but that's also part of the first team. You know, I worry that the under 20 team didn't qualify. I think it was for the Olympics. It was either that or the U 20 world cup. And that just, you know, that just makes me worried that, you know, especially in a very weak region that CONCACAF has, you know, Mexico and the United States are really the only two decent teams in CONCACAF. I mean, Jamaica and Costa Rica, you know, they're okay. They, they do, you know, decent, but, you know, it's <laughs> nothing like South America, you know, or Europe where good teams don't qualify for the World Cup. Because there's just so much competition. You know, the United States and Mexico should qualify every time. Every four years, you should always see the United States and Mexico just because of how weak, you know, CONCACAF is. But when the U-20 team can't even qualify for the Olympics, that makes me really worried about what we have <laughs> down the pipeline. Um, I yeah. do think that with Pulisic, you know, Justin Gladden, Jordan Allen for RSL, you have Gideon Zalalem, um, depending on how he comes back from his ACL surgery and then you got jordan morris and bobby wood i mean you have good bright spots but i feel like it's bruce arena's job to start developing them now so that they're ready to take the roles because you know dempsey howard you know even bradley they're they're past their prime oh. you know bradley is you know he's in the last couple years of his prime and i don't think any of the mainstays that we've seen at the last couple world cups are going to play after russia <laughs> and yeah. that's where i really worry yeah well and you look at it is um our signature win in the pool play is over martinique by three to two i mean allowing martinique to even score two goals is ridiculous i mean we should have destroyed them like they we should have manhandled them they were not at the same level as the u.s should be but they are because of the development. I mean, they're just not players. Young players just aren't getting developed. You have to be a natural stud to even get noticed. I mean, Pulisic is, is a starter because he's better than everyone else, just naturally. I mean, he's just better. But you can't rely on players that are just better. Players that are just better don't come around very often. I mean, the the Messis and the Ronaldos don't come around very often. You have to develop the players into the great players that you see, the, the players that are, you know, the, the backline players, the defenders, the good, you know, the good solid players that all of those good countries who are fighting for the World Cup have that we just don't have because no one's developing them. No one's putting them into those situations that they need to be to be able to be ready for the World Cup. Yeah, and I just feel, you know, I feel like there could be ways. I don't feel like they recruit very well within the United States. Um, I feel like the United States, they have the resources and they have the ability to develop these players, but they're not. Um, once a player gets into the system, I feel like they're not trying to introduce many more people. They just start young and then try to develop those same people all the way through, which is great. But I just feel like, you know, some of these smaller towns in the United States could have a star but because nobody knows about them or because they come from a different lifestyle that they're not able to get word out, they're never noticed. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you look at Dempsey on how he got his rise. I mean, he his parents had to drive him four or five hours a day 
to be able to get him to practices and to games and things and to be able to put him in that situation. A majority of people don't have the funds, don't have the ability to be able to do something like that for their kids. And so those those star players that have the talent that Dempsey had when he was a kid don't get the opportunity because they, their parents or their situations aren't able to get them to those places. And so it's it's just it's difficult when, you know, players in small towns who are talented who have the talent to be able to make it to, you know, U sixteen, U fourteen Olympic teams and stuff like that. They have the talent, they just need the development, but they don't have the funds or the ability to be able to to do stuff like that, to be able to go to places and get noticed and get recruited. It's 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 hard. Yeah. Well, if we don't have any more on that subject, we'll move right to the next one as well. And that's video replay. And whether or not, does, does it even have a place in soccer? Um, Major League Soccer is actually going to introduce video replay August 5th. So in two weeks, video replay will be introduced in MLS. And, you know, FIFA's already tried it out a couple times. And do you think video replay should be in soccer? Yes. I think it has to be in soccer. Either... They, they either need to add video replay or add another official because they just don't have the eyes to be able to cover 20, 23, 22 players or however many, I can't even remember, 23 players on the field. I mean, they've got the back, the the line judges who don't really worry about fouls. They'll call fouls if they're close to them, but they worry about offsides and they worry about lines and stuff like that. They have one official who's worrying about the ball. And that's all he worries about. There's so much that goes on, like the bite on Altidore a couple days ago. I mean, Josie Altidore got bit in the middle of the box, and no one saw it. And they twisted his nipple. Yeah, he got a titty twister, and no one saw it. I mean, that has to. Those things have to be noticed. Those things have to be seen. And if without video replay, they'd need another official, and I don't see them adding another official. And so they have to use video replay. It has to be introduced because there's no way that you can catch those little things. I mean, that that El Salvador player is going to go completely unpunished because they've already been elim- eliminated from the Gold Cup. The guy might get a few games suspension from international play, but you that he should have been ejected from the game right off the bat. That should have been huge, an automatic red card. And yet... He's able to last the game. He's able to play in that game because – and he made some pretty critical stops that could have given the USA three or even a four-goal lead. I mean he's he, that guy was one of their best defensive players, and he should have not – he should not have been in the game. Brandon, what do you think? Video replay? Give us your thoughts. I would tend to agree with Chase. Um, I do think that – they, you know, with with as long as uh, games are in soccer and the fact that the clock doesn't stop, um, it needs to be, if there is video replay, um, there needs to be a replay center where they've got like two, um, two refs, basically, who are watching the replay at all times and they can communicate with the, the ref down on the on the pitch. Um, but if it, if it turns into things like what happened in, what happened in basketball all the time with, with video replays where they go for like two or three minutes and just look at the, look at the play. Um, I, 
I think it would be uh, detrimental to the game itself. They need to make sure that um, with video replay, they have a way to keep it from hindering the, the flow of the game. You know, I think that's exactly right. You know, you hit it right on the head. It has to be fast. It has to be painless. Um, if it takes more than 30 seconds tops, it shouldn't be reviewed or it doesn't matter. You know, because, you know, sometimes you get somebody that gets injured and there's some time there um, that's wasted. But they need to make sure that they don't interrupt that flow because soccer is all about flow. Um, that's why certain players will take a card to stop the flow of the game and have that break for a second and disrupt a team. And I feel like if replay comes in and they're slow about it, it's going to completely change the way the game's been played. And I don't like that. Soccer's about flow and keeping everything moving. And so I like what Brandon said is, you know, keep a replay center or have people specifically watching for things. But it should be something as easy as they are only in charge of offsides, whether or not the ball crossed the line. And that's about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that maybe add a, mm -hmm. another ref, another midline ref. Um, but then mm -hmm. you get into who's in charge of giving yellows, who's in charge of giving reds. So that makes it difficult. But I feel like, you know, replay should only be over whether or not a ball completely crossed the goal line and whether or not somebody was offsides on like a goal scoring opportunity. Um, I feel like it's the ref's job. There are four or five of them. They're introducing a line ref to see if a ball does cross the line. Um, you know, they're introducing this video replay. So I feel like they have enough eyes on the field that they need to catch the bites and the punches and that thing because that's their job. But I feel like video replay would be a great asset in whether or not something was offsides or whether or not something was like a PK. But it needs to be done <laughs> extremely fast as in like five to ten seconds they need to go down and say offsides mm -hmm. so that they so that the ref mm -hmm. knows by the time they're celebrating they need to be able to say mm -hmm. per the video replay oh. you were offsides mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i think that that communication i mean technology is great they should the officials should be able to communicate continuously with the officials in the replay booth and I think that's where it would help a lot with that speed and keeping it up because they should be able to have that wireless connection with them. They already do. They already have talking connections with their side judges. Why can't they do, do it with more? Why can't they put two officials in the replay booth, be able to see those plays from 20 different angles and be able to catch those offsides, the PK stuff, and those flagrant fouls that you know go, go missed – and be able to communicate with him that quick and then go, you know, five, 10 seconds later, be able to give a card, even though he wasn't, didn't see the play. He has two guys that see the play that verified for the play and that he can give the card based on that instead of him trying to rely so much on himself and rely on, you know, making the call himself, making his call, he being able to rely on the other officials to help him make those calls. And, you know, I think that's very good. I think that, you know, if it's a card, I think they should be able to assess a card without necessarily assessing the foul. They need to be able to say, okay, this guy bit and gave Josie Altador a purple nurple right at the same time. You know, we're not calling the penalty kick because it was two minutes ago, but I'm going back and mm -hmm. saying, we caught that, and now you're out of here. You know, because mm -hmm. that's, that's a, lot, a good step. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a lot like a delayed foul. It's a delayed card, mm-hmm. you know, where uh, a player definitely gets him and, and it should be a yellow card, but the offensive team is still able to control the ball. And so you let the player, let the team control the ball through until the end of the possession and then you give the card. Yep, just exactly the advantage. It should be a lot like that. It was the advantage that mm-hmm. you're referring to that the ref has the discretion mm-hmm. and then at the next dead ball, he assesses the card. Um, exactly. So I think that, you know, whether or not there is an advantage, they should be able to go back and say, per the replay, um, you know, we assess this card or we assess this and only on cards. Mm-hmm. They don't need to go back and say, okay, yeah. you actually fouled him, but we missed that foul. You know, they yeah. just need to say, okay, we think this is a yellow or at least maybe even just red. Say, if it was a blatant mm-hmm. red card, buzz down and say, yeah. next dead ball, throw him out. Yeah, that's all they need. I mean, yellows aren't really that big a deal. I mean, yes, if you get two yellows, you're out, but yellows aren't really that big a deal. They don't hand them out that much to really be that helpful. And yellows are, you know, just a little bit more than a normal foul. So being able to forget those and move past them isn't a big deal. But players that are blatantly, you know, abusing the rules, blatantly doing something that is completely against the game like biting and like titty twisters and, and like just stupid crap that some of these guys pull, they, they, why, why can't they, the officials be able to call down and kick them out? I mean, they don't really need them for yellow cards. Just have, have the help there for reds. Right. And that's, you know, kind of, they have the MLS disciplinary committee and they do Mm -hmm. that after the fact, they will assess cards after the fact, but that doesn't, change the fact that it should have helped decide the game that's already completed. And so that yeah, that's where I exactly. see the difference between the MLS disciplinary committee and what we're talking about is they need to be able to do it more instantaneous because that mm-hmm. does change the course of the current game as well as the next game. Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 you take those, um, I can't remember the guy's name a few years ago that bit the, the guy, in the European League. Luis Suarez. He's done it multiple times. Him. Yeah. And though he, he's a good, a dominant player. He's a really good player. But if those weren't caught, he could make a huge impact on the rest of the game. And that's it, the same thing happened in the El Salvador game. I mean, the player was a good player. He was their best defender. He should have been gone. I mean, if that guy's gone, I guarantee you USA scores at least one more goal. Because he was their best defender. He's able to lock down Altador and able to get in his head. And so if he's gone, that pressure's not there for Altador. Altador's able to roll more freely because they don't have anybody to keep up with him. Right. And then just last kind of topic on this is, um, you know, what Chase was talking about with yellow cards not being quite as important is it takes five yellow cards over the course of a season before you're suspended your next game. So, I mean, like he said, yellow cards are not a huge deal. And then every step after that is additional three cards. So when you get five cards, you're suspended the next game. You get three more, so you're up to eight, and you're suspended another game. You get another three, there's another game. Two more, there's another one. And then for every two after that. But, I mean, the MLS season is not that long. You know, if you're averaging less than two, if you're averaging a yellow less than, you know, in every two games, you're only going to serve like a one or two game suspension. So, I mean, I don't yeah. know if the if video replay should be able to assess a yellow, but I do think they should assess red. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, awesome. that's going to be it for soccer today. And we've got some time. We're going to move into NBA.
And first topic on the list is how are the small market teams handling the NBA and how are they coping with not being able to lure these big players to their markets? Um, so I guess that's, that's always been a challenge. Um, you know, for any small market teams, it's not named San Antonio. Um, and as far as San Antonio goes, I mean, it's fairly easy when you got fairly good weather and no state income tax. Um, and then you had Tim Duncan on your team for 20 years. Um, between those three things, it's pretty easy to get people to come to your team. Um, but San Antonio didn't really build that way. They didn't really sign big free agents. And when they did, it was LaMarcus Aldridge. Um, and I'm still not sure that was a really good sign. Um, You're forgetting how well Pau Gasol worked out for him, too. <laughs> oh, man. Pau Gasol. Don't get me started on Pau Gasol. But, Topic for um, today. Yeah. <laughs> Could be an entire podcast on Pau Gasol. Um, really, though. <laughs> um, but really, the only way small market teams have been able to, to do anything is uh, through the draft and somehow getting good trades, um, which is one of the reasons why I don't think the, the Jazz are going to try to trade for Kyrie Irving. I think the Timberwolves would probably be the only small market team I would think would even consider it. Um, so how long does Kyrie have left on his contract? It's it's not that long. Two years. Two years. And so, yeah, for, like, even if the Jazz were able to trade for him or even if another small market team were able to trade for him. Um, it's just a loan. You know, is, is he going to – he's going to leave after two years. Same – same thing with Paul George. Um, I, you know, I I don't know if the Thunder are going to do well enough this year to to make it that enticing for Paul George to stay in Oklahoma City. Um, I think what has to happen is things like Kevin Durant leaves and the the guy the the secondary star who's been there their entire career along with the guy who leaves kind of like what happened with Gordon Hayward um, and Rudy Gobert um, they I don't know I think they become more loyal when somebody leaves like that you know so I don't see Westbrook leaving Oklahoma City unless Oklahoma City just implodes um, and so really the only way to do it is to to get lucky in the draft, um, the young stars aren't going to want to sign in places like like Utah or Denver, um, or you can sign the thirty-four-year-old veterans. Um, the you know Denver signed Paul Millsap. I don't think he's thirty-four yet, is he? Um, I don't think so. But. Um, the Jazz signed Joe Johnson last year, and um, like we traded for George Hill, and everyone thought that George Hill was going to be around for a while, and mm -hmm. now he's in Sacramento. Um, yeah, Paul Millsap, which I don't 32. think is thirty-two. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's a bad mm -hmm. thing for the Jazz that George Hill left. 
but that's kind of off topic. Um, yeah. So yeah, really, the only way to do it is to do it through the draft, I think. Mm-hmm. So, do you think that a salary ta- uh, a franchise tag, like how the NFL has it, where they can franchise tag players and be able to keep them on the year for one for a year, and that can kind of give them time to be able to work out a better full-time contract with them. And then they get paid the average salary of the top three player of the highest three salaries of in that player's position. Should the NFL try and incorporate someone like that so that the small market teams can kind of do more to keep those players there? Or do you think that the system is fine and that the, that the players just need to be more loyal (laughs) or whatever? I kind of like the thought of that. But I feel like if a player doesn't want to be somewhere, they're not going to give their all. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be the bottom line is, you know, Gord, let's, we'll, we'll use Gordon Hayward because we're Jazz fans. If all of a sudden the Jazz say, well, we know you want to go to Boston, but we're making you stay for another year. You know, that's mm-hmm. going to create a well, lot more mm-hmm. contentious feelings because he wanted to go to Boston. I mean, whether or not they could have worked out a sign-in trade if we would have franchise tagged him is a completely different mm-hmm. matter. But I just feel like yeah. it might create a lot more um, commotion and a lot more distress by players mm-hmm. saying, well, I want to leave. Now I'm just either going to not play or, you know, I just don't mm-hmm. care. Yeah. And there are a lot more NFL players who sit out and who who protest, I guess, contracts and things like that. But if you think about it, the player wants money. Like in the long run, they want a big contract. They want that big money where they want to be. And so if you find a tag tagging for a year, if they don't play at all for a full year, what's their value going to be? Like you look at look at those players, their value is not going to be what it was the year before. So they have to play well. They have to play well or else their value is going to go way down. And so, I mean, yeah, they can sit out if they want. They can They can strike if they want. But it's it's hurting them. It's not really hurting the franchises. I mean, yeah, the, the franchise who has to pay him $35 million a year for sitting there, yeah, it sucks. But it's in the long run, it's going to hurt the players more. Well, the, the, um, the home team, for lack of a better term, already has the bird rights in the NBA. They can already mm-hmm. offer that player more. The NBA has mm-hmm. tried to make it so... A team that drafts a guy can keep that guy for longer. Um, But more and more, it's getting to the point where um, you can't, um, like, a guy's not going to go somewhere just because of the money. Um, Maybe in their early 20s, they'll do that. But by the time they're getting close to 30, they're... They're looking for a place where they can win. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think, well, it depends on what happens with Cleveland, but I don't think Gordon Hayward going to Boston gives him a better chance to win. But he felt that way. That's why he took less money. Um, a lot and less so, money. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like over, it just, I don't think that the NBA itself can get players to stay with 
small market teams unless those players are willing to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think that Hayward left the Jazz because of the market. I don't think he left because of the the um, the franchise. Um, I think there were other reasons why he left. Um, and looking at Jazz fan blogs, everyone thinks it's because he hated the Jazz organization and wanted to to screw the Jazz basically. Um, but with how everything happened, I don't think that's that's how it went down. I think it was a, mm-hmm. an unfortunate side effect of Hayward's indecision in the end. Um, it's true. Very true. But yeah, there's too many incentives already. It just doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense to yeah. add more. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think that I really like the direction that the jazz are going right now because of um, you, you notice international players are a lot more loyal. They're going to be more loyal. They're going to like Rudy. I mean, Rudy's been is going to defend the Jazz till the day he dies. I mean, the guy's as loyal as it comes. And if that's the thing, those international guys don't grow up with the whole preconceived notion that oh, this is a big market team, this is a small market team. I want to live in these big cities and you know whatever. They don't come up. They don't aren't raised with those preconceived notions. And so they come to a team that puts money into them, that you know trusts them, and that invests in them. They're gonna. Get, have the back of that team. They're going to rely on that team. I mean, they're going to do whatever they can for that team. And so that's where I feel like I, I really like the whole international route. And so, and that's where, you know, I, I really like how the Jazz are doing it. And I think Dennis Lindsay is doing really, has done as good as he can in this off season. And it's because, I mean, he's gotten a lot. We've, we've got more international players on our roster right now than we have American born players. That's never happened ever in the NBA. Never has a team started the season with more international players than, than American born players. Never once. And the jazz, it looks like it's going to happen. So, I mean, the NBA is going in a different direction, especially the smart market teams are going to have to. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, next topic. Um, how well are, you know, James Harden and CP three really going to mesh? Um, does this make Houston a threat to golden state? Or do you think it's going to be, you know, a failed experiment? I think it'll blow up in their faces about halfway through the season. <laughs> I, I, they're two players that rely so much on controlling the ball and being the focal point of an offense. Yeah, at the beginning, they'll be able to concede a little bit. But they're, like, you get to the points of who takes a game-winning shot, who has the ball in the fourth quarter, who does who you know who as little things as who brings the ball up the court every time i mean they're going to argue over those little things when they can't do it anymore i mean it's i i do not feel like it's going to work i think they're going to implode i i mean if they make the playoffs i'll be pretty surprised because i do not see that see it playing very well houston had to give up way too much to get chris paul the clippers definitely won that trade 100 percent. i would i would take the Clippers side in that trade any day. Cause Patrick Beverly is a great defender. Like, yeah, he's a freaking retard, but still he's a great defender. Lou um, Williams is a great scorer. Some... Like you've got yeah, Patrick exactly. Beverly isn't the defender. Lou Williams is a scorer. I know Sam Decker had some good games last year. You know, I, I agree with what Chase mm-hmm. said. I just feel like, you know, Houston gave up way too much. 
You know, they shipped out like five things, five people just to get Chris Paul. And I don't know of many players who are worth five other NBA level players. Like, yeah. especially well, with how short that Houston's bench was to begin with. I mean, Houston yeah. didn't have a bench. They played barely seven players in the playoffs. I mean, cause they didn't have anybody to play. Right. I feel like it comes down <laughs> you, to whose team is it? That's going to be the biggest question. I think they have to answer this season is, is this James Harden's team or is this Chris Paul's team? Chris Paul has been the man on every team he's played with his whole career. It's been his team. But now he's going to either have to take a step back or James Harden's going to have to go back to where he was in OKC and play, you know, second or third fiddle. And I don't know if he well, can do that. Well, yeah, I don't think it's – I think it'll implode long before they get the power struggle. Um, you just look at the strengths of – the strengths and weaknesses of Chris Paul and – James Harden. And with James Harden, it's not even that he doesn't want to be a second option. It's that his skill set is not set up for him to be a second option. Um, he is extremely good with the ball in his hands. Um, he's a good catch-and-shoot player, but that's not his strength. He's not going to be nearly as effective that way. Um, he'll still be good, but he's not going to be nearly as good as as he was if he's trying to be a catch-and-shoot or a second-option player, you know. Mm-hmm. And similar with yeah. Chris Paul. Um, Chris Paul's strength is his ability to break down a defense with his, um, you know, point guard, point guard abilities. He's not a shooting guard. And so... I, I don't think it even comes down to the power struggle. I think it's going to fall apart long before it comes to a power struggle. Mm-hmm. You know, I just think that, you know, Chris Paul, I think it's going to be kind of a wake-up call for him again because, you know, Houston's invested a lot into James Harden, and now Paul has less talent around him. You know, James Harden could be the best teammate Chris Paul's played with, but at the same time, Chris Paul is a great pick-and-roll point guard. You know, he's a very good defensive point guard. But James Harden can't run the pick and roll, at least being the, you know, the pick setter. And he doesn't really play a ton of defense. You know, his defense is not his strength. So I just feel like they don't complement each other, kind of like what Brandon said. They both have to rely with the ball in their hands to be dominant. And so it's going to be, okay, mm-hmm. Paul, you take the ball for a few plays, then I'll take the ball for a few plays. And that's why I feel like Oklahoma City is going to be better than them. I feel like Oklahoma City with Westbrook and George are probably going to mesh better than Harden and CP3. I would agree. Definitely. Definitely. And it's it's just – it's a weird setup, and they've they've got no bench players. Um, Capella is not that great of pick of a pick-and-roll player. Like, yeah, he's athletic, and yeah, he can get up and, and um, catch those alley-oops and stuff from Paul and, and from Harden. But – he doesn't have the presence, the body presence, to be able to set good screens and not get called on fouls. He got called on a lot of fouls, a lot of moving screens last year because he doesn't have good enough presence of body to be able to set those screens well and to be able to keep the, the defensive player off of the, the ball handler. He just doesn't have it. And so they either need to go out and find a guy who can do that or they just need to 
trade one of them. I mean, they could get a crap ton for Chris Paul. I mean, yeah, they, they sold off a ton for Chris Paul. But what they really need is a big man who can set good screens, who can be a dominant offensive force and yet still anchor defense. I mean, Capella is going to be a pretty good defensive anchor. He's not going to be anywhere close to Gobert or anywhere close to even Dwight Howard. But he's he's going to be decent enough. And Houston, all they're going to try and do is outscore teams. Chris Paul is not going to understand that with especially – I mean, he's in his early 30s. He's not going to want to change how he plays. He's so He's going to be so set in his ways that he's not going to want to change anything. And so him – being such a good defender doesn't really fit in how Houston runs. Like, yeah, they, I mean, you should defend, but they're going to try and outscore ev- on everybody. They're, that's all they're going to try and do is just outshoot people, and they, they're not going to be able to do that. You know, I think Houston would have gotten a lot better if they would have traded for DeAndre Jordan instead of Chris Paul because he would have been that defensive anchor that is a force True. that, you know, everything mm-hmm. but his free throw shooting is a solid player. And so, you know, I think that like Chase was saying, if they would have traded for somebody from the Clippers, it would have made more sense to go with Jordan. Yeah, definitely. But so I kind of gave my two cents on it, you know, but who's going to be better, Harden and Paul or uh, Westbrook and George? Westbrook and George. Yeah, definitely Westbrook and George. Uh, I just think that they complement each other better. George is a Kevin Durant-esque player, but he doesn't demand the ball as much as as Durant did. And so I feel like that Westbrook is still going to be able to be the MVP-type player that he is. He's not going to have the triple-double numbers like he had last year, but he's going to be able to control the ball, control the tempo, and Paul George is going to be able to – Paul George is a dang good three-point shooter. He shot 41% from the three-point line last year, and that's something that the Thunder did not have. They did not have a three-point shooter last year. I mean, Oladipo was one of their best shooters, and he shot like 35 36%. That's nothing. That's terrible. And so if he's, – he's going to be able to spread out the floor more, and both of them have the ball-handing abilities to break down any defender in the league. And so they're – they're going to be able to – I think they'll be a home home seed. They'll, they'll definitely be a top four seed in the West. But I don't – like Houston, I see them being seven or eight maybe. I, I could easily see them not making the playoffs, especially with how much they had to sell. So I definitely think that, that Westbrook, George, is a, a lot better. It's going to be a lot better. Okay, All right. Um, so, yeah, I agree. I I don't know how much more there is to add. Um, I will say that just to add on to one thing Chase said, Paul George doesn't really demand the ball unless you're C.J. Miles. Um, True. But um, apart from that, I, I, I really like Paul George. Um, and him getting frustrated in Indiana is understandable. Um, but yeah yeah, I do think that OKC is going to be really good Um, I'm not sure if they're I'm not as sure as Chase on if they're going to be fourth seed with as good as the West has gotten this um, this next year Um, but they're def I definitely believe that they will be better than Houston Um, so so, Chase last time I Mm -hmm. think you remember I remember you saying that Minnesota was going to be a top four seed 
So do you think yeah. both Minnesota <laughs> and Oklahoma City are going to be top four? I do. I think it'll be. Division is gonna I don't have think that the Spurs. Well, I don't think the Spurs are going to be as good as everyone. Like, yeah, the Spurs always are up there, but they're not. They're old. They're crazy old. And I mean, yeah, but we say how, that how every is... single year. Yeah. And every single yeah, year, they're like, "Oh, guess what? We're still going to win sixty-five games, even though we're 90. You know, I'm with Skip Bayless. It's, it's, it's like I can't bet against San Antonio. Them. Like, you just can't do it. You've been kicked in the face so many times with them saying, "Guess what? We're defying the odds." That you yeah. know, I just... well, I just well, you look at it and you think about how good is Kawhi going to be coming off the ankle injury. One, because it definitely was more serious than the Spurs let on. The Spurs do not like a player like that with that. As the Spurs were saying, how minor the injury was. You don't pl- you don't react like that to a minor injury, and so he's that injury has got to take a toll on him. That injury is going to be I, I think he's going to be dealing with it a lot more than people let on, and Kawhi has to be an MVP type player for them to be a home seed for them to get a top four seed. He has to be because who else are they going to rely on? Aldridge has proven that he cannot be relied on. He cannot defend. He all he has is the fifteen to eighteen foot jumper. His post moves were terrible in the playoffs so you cannot rely on Aldridge Gasol's freaking 50 they just so you can't rely on him extension exactly and so who are you going to rely on Patty Mills Danny Green like who are you going to rely on you can't rely on anybody because I don't think Tony Parker's I mean, yeah, but... got a ton left in him like it, you proved it last year in the playoffs he and Manu are just mm-hmm. shells of what they used to be Exactly. So there's just not going to be the team that everyone thinks. Like, yeah, you have to give this first credit. You have to give Popovich credit. He's the greatest coach to ever coach. Like, I'll admit it now. A couple of years ago, I would never have admitted that. But right <laughs> now, he is he is the greatest coach to ever coach. I, I, will, I would put him over Jackson. I'd put him over Sloan. I'd put him over anybody. Because of the players that he's been able to win championships with is unreal. But... You can only rely on your coach so much. You have to have talent in the NBA. You have to have talent, and they just don't have it. So speaking of talent, did the Clippers really lose a lot? We've kind of touched on it already, but they lost Paul. But did they really get worse? Um, well, Paul worked really well with their, um, with their scheme, but at the same time their scheme was not great. Um, and so if you lose a guy like Paul, it's hard to argue that you didn't get worse, but I don't think they're going to be, um, much worse, especially not in the playoffs. Um, not in the playoff atmosphere, not that they could get much worse in the playoffs, but it's true. They, they just have to be healthy. And I think they're good. they're still talented. They still got a lot of talent. I mean, they're gonna have to rely on Blake a lot more. Blake's gonna you're gonna see Blake Griffin taking the ball up a lot, quite a bit. And he has the talent for it. He's gonna be able to do it. It's just can Blake stay healthy, and that's it. I mean, if Blake stays healthy, they make the playoffs. They fight for a home court advantage. They won't get it, but they'll probably fight for it, maybe. But if Blake is injured more than 20 games in the season, they do not have – I don't think they'll have a winning record. What if I don't think they'll play people? that well. Then he's <laughs> going to be stupid and, and they're not going to make the playoffs anyway. But it's – you know, he's just not 
it's not going to happen. And so Blake has to be healthy. If Blake's not healthy, they don't win. So is Blake worth the max? Is he really worth the max contract that they gave him? <sighs> yes and no. I mean, he has to be. I mean, he's got he's a, he's a super talented player, super athletic, and it's it's the whole stigma of the entire NBA. Can you stay healthy? If you can stay healthy, yes. Like you have to put that in anywhere. Is if they stay healthy, he can be dominant. But if he can't, then you just waste a crap ton of money on him sitting there. But you have to roll the dice. Like especially for a player of his caliber, you have to roll the dice and hope that he can stay healthy. And if he can, then yeah, definitely he is easily worth a max contract. Brandon? So I'm gonna I'm gonna invent a word here. Um, it's called attitudinally. Um, <laughs> attitudinally, definitely not. I, I do not think Blake Griffin has the, um, <laughs> the, yeah, just the ability to, um, to lead a team mentally. Um, talent wise, he is excellent. He is athletic. He has improved his jump shot. He's improved his free throws. Um, he's decent on defense. Um, I think talent-wise, definitely, he's worth the max. But just mentally, he's not going to be able to to lead a team, um, especially late in the games. We've seen it for years. We saw it in the playoffs this last year. He just disappears in the fourth quarter. Um, and so I think unless he develops some sort of mental grit, he's, he's not necessarily worth the max contract to me. Fair enough. I, you know, I think the same thing that, you know, Chase and Brandon both said is when he's healthy, he's probably worth the max just because of the talent level he has. But in my opinion, attitude concerns would be enough for me to hesitate giving the contract. I would find a way to slip into his contract. If you punch anybody or if you create any sort of a ruckus, you owe us money. You know, I'd find something because I just feel like his attitude, it doesn't match when you're in the city of L.A. Like, there's so much temptation and so many ways things can go wrong in L.A. that somebody who can't control their anger and has this type of, these type of issues, it, just, it would be very hard for me to offer the max to him. Okay, well, I think I think we are out of time for today. Um, so I will take us out. Let's see, next week we are going to talk about the LeBron dynasty and whether or not it is coming to an end. Um, going to talk about summer league um, rookies and um, standouts from the NBA summer league. Uh, we're going to talk about the Gold Cup semifinals and finals. Um, we're going to talk about the football season, um, just you know, getting getting ready for the the NFL season to start. Um, talk about the NBA conferences and divisions, whether we should get rid of them for the playoffs. Um, we're going to ask if the MLS is expanding too fast, um, and. We will see if we have anything more to talk about on the Kyrie trade talks. Um, we are also going to have Chase define several terms, um, crap ton, 
And then he's going to come up with um, several new ways to say purple nurple. So, um, Perfect. Thanks, everyone. Uh, this has been the Sports ABCs, and we will see you again next week. Whoa!